Welcome back. Tomorrow will mark one month since the attacks on Israel of October 7th, the terror attack launched by Hamas against Israeli civilians, uh, killing over 1,400. The worst day, uh, the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. Uh, so that has led now to this uh, conflict between Israel and Gaza. Uh, but one element of all of this that the Canton and shouldn't be overlooked is the hostages. Uh, that yes, Hamas murdered uh, over 1,400 Israelis that day. But there were also a number of civilians, over 240, that were taken hostage. Now, Israel has insisted that there can be no ceasefire or pause without the release of the hostages. So far, though, that hasn't happened. And as this conflict continues, uh, there is indeed growing concern about the fate of these hostages, which does include women and children. Uh, so their status does need to remain front and center. Uh, and families uh, of these hostages are working to ensure that that remains the case, that we don't forget about them, uh, that any conversation about where this all goes needs to ensure uh, that their safety remains a top priority. Uh, so joining us to talk more about this uh, is someone who is uh, right in the midst of all of this. Uh, Aaron Brodach is a Canadian Israeli living in Toronto. His sister-in-law, her three children were all kidnapped from their home by Hamas on that fateful day and taken to Gaza where they remain as hostages. They're obviously very concerned uh, about uh, all of them, the children especially, and want the Canadian government to make the release of the hostages a top priority for us as we engage on this whole situation. Uh, so as mentioned, joining us on the line here this afternoon uh, from his home in Toronto, Aaron Brodach uh, on the line with us. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us through what's obviously a very difficult time for you and your family, but do appreciate making some time for us here today. Thank you for having me. Just first of all, what's the latest? Have you heard anything at all in, in recent days? Or what do we know about uh, about the hostages and about your family members in particular? Uh, we don't know very much. We we know they're in Gaza. Um, we believe they're alive. Um, we have not been told otherwise. Um, but apart from that, we, we know nothing. What can you tell us about, uh, you know, your, your family members, your sister-in-law, her children, where they were living and, and what happened to them on October 7th? Yeah. So, uh, Agal, uh, my, my sister-in-law, um, and her three children, Ofui, who's 10 years old, Yuval, who's eight years old, and Uya, who's four years old, um, together with uh, another girl um, named Avigail, who's four years old. Um, were taken into Gaza. Uh, my brother, he lives in Kibbutz Kfar Gaza. Um, his house is the first house uh, on the fence. And um, when everything started, he heard a knock on his door um, and he saw a girl, was the neighbor's girl, uh, Avigail. She was covered in blood, um, what later turned out to be her father's blood. He was murdered um, probably on top of her. Um, he took her in the house, uh, gave her to his wife, and told them to all hide. He went out to help in the kibbutz. Um, and somewhere during uh, all the fire, he got hurt and couldn't make it back home. Um, and meanwhile, he was texting with his wife, uh, and he got the message they're coming in. Um, that was the last he heard from her. 
at that point, he believed they were all killed because uh, Hamas was going door to door, killing everyone and burning the houses down. Um, and so we, I, I was in Toronto at the time, uh, and at, at that point, we believed they're all dead uh, for about um, a day and a half. Uh, but a day and a half later, uh, someone told us that he had seen them uh, taken into uh, into Gaza. And three days later, when uh, they were able to clear the, the kibbutz, um, soldiers went into the house, and they saw that the house is empty. Um, they they reported this to, to my brother. When when they told him this story, they, they actually said that his house was the only house that had water working. And so all the soldiers came in to drink. Um, and when they opened the fridge, they saw birthday cake uh, because his older daughter, Flea, had, uh, was just about to celebrate a birthday party with her friends that Saturday. And so all the soldiers started uh, crying immediately when they kind of realized yeah. um, what had gone on in the house. Yeah, your, your niece, had, uh, as I understand, just in fact visited you uh, this this past summer in Toronto. That's right. Uh, so my, my niece, Ophelia, together with my mom, uh, came to visit us in summer for a month. Um, my niece went uh, spent part of the time at summer camp, and so she made a ton of uh, Canadian friends um, without even being able to speak English. Um, she's a, an incredibly, incredibly fun child and, and Part of the reason you're, you're speaking out is to, to make sure that these stories remain at the forefront, make sure that this is a priority for the Canadian government uh, as, as we address the situation. Do you feel like enough is being done right now to, to try to secure the release of the hostages? No. Um, it's been more than a month. Um, when I left uh, Canada to, to be with my family in Israel, I was completely expecting everything to be, not everything, but at least the hostage situation to be over within a few days. Um, there are 240 hostages. Most of them are civilians. Most, Many of them are children, 33 children. It makes absolutely no sense that it is taking this long. Um, I think people's priorities are just wrong, uh, you know, especially the Israeli government um, that has not... Uh, prioritize this at, at the top of the list, which is crazy. Uh, but also other governments um, who are, you know, trying to um, look at the larger conflict. Um, th- there is clearly a terrible conflict that's going on, but there's one piece of that conflict which is very obvious, and that is that uh, a terrorist organization is committing an insane crime uh, you know, it's a human rights crime. It's it's a crime against humanity every single day by holding these hostages. This yeah. is not normal warfare. This is this is completely crazy. Well, I know Israel has has refused to accept any ceasefire that does not involve the release of the hostages. What's your sense of of what it's going to take then to to secure their release? Um, I you know I, I don't understand how these things work, and I'm getting information from you know, different people who have uh, wildly different opinions. I, I have no idea how to judge them. Um, 
but it certainly you know discourages me to hear um, the Israeli government um, saying that releasing the hostages is one of the objectives of the war. Um, you know, clearly this is the most pressing objective. These hostages, every single day that passes, is is an absolute nightmare for children who are staying there. Um, you know, Yuval is four years old. He's, uh, you know, we do not want him to celebrate birthday underground. This is, you know, there's a, there's a, a child there who's 10 months old. He was nine months when he was abducted. He has spent 10% of his life in tunnel underground right now. You know, this is extremely time pressing. Um, and, you know, clearly not whatever they're doing, it's not the right thing because uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're still not, not out, out. You know, something we've seen here in Canada and in the United States as well, and it's, it's really disturbing where, you know, individuals have put out posters uh, of the hostages to try to keep them, them at the forefront of all these conversations, raise awareness uh, about this side of the story. To see those posters being torn down, I understand in Toronto, police uh, arrested someone today who was tearing down posters and and actually assaulted somebody who was trying to stop them. I mean, it, it's it's hard to understand what would lead someone to do that. What I mean is 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 you go through all of this, and I mean it's your family, your loved ones who are in this situation. What goes through your mind when you see and, and hear about that? I, I, these you know these are e- either very stupid individuals who have no idea what they're doing or extremely sick individuals who, you know, think that holding civilian hostages prisoner is, is some kind of, uh, you know, normal piece of, of resistance. Um, you know, Hamas is not a, a resistance group. It is a terrorist organization that is violating uh, you know, every single international law, and this is <laughs> holding women and children hostage yeah. is nuts. And, and anyone who's carrying down the posters, you know, is clearly either very stupid or, or at least misinformed or just a terrible, terrible human being. We'll continue to follow this and, and hope they come home soon and safe. Uh, Aaron, all, all the best to you and, and your family. And again, thanks sir, for speaking with us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Bye. Yeah, so there you go. That's uh, Aaron Brodach, uh, Canadian-Israeli living in Toronto. His sister-in-law, her three young children uh, remain hostages of Hamas almost uh, one month after that horrific day. <laughs> Ask for a ceasefire. How can you ask for Israel to stop their aggression when you go on television in Lebanon here last week and say that you will continue your aggression? You will continue you to launch to, October yes, 7th yeah. what, what again want, and again and what again. What do you want us to do? To stop? If you're asking for to a stop? ceasefire. Well, that was interesting. That was uh, Ghazi Hamad, who's the spokesperson for Hamas. And maybe you've seen him being interviewed by various international media outlets. That was uh, an interview with NBC. And they asked him, well, you say you want a ceasefire, but uh, you, you keep fighting. And, and the Hamas spokesman says, well, what do you want us to do, stop? Uh, so it's, a, it's pretty clear that you know, when, when we're talking about a ceasefire, when people are calling for a ceasefire, they're basically just asking one side to stop fighting. They're just basically asking Israel uh, to stop fighting. But that's not a ceasefire. Uh, when Hamas says that they're prepared to carry out their Al-Aqsa flood operation over and over again, we should take them at their word. 
uh, when the spokesman for Hamas says, says, what, would you want us to do, stop? It's pretty clear that they have no intention of stopping. Now, Israel's prime minister today is saying that, you know, there, there's, it's a non-starter. The idea is that of a ceasefire is a non-starter unless Hamas is prepared to release hostages. And at this point, it doesn't appear as though Hamas is. So again, those who are calling for a ceasefire, are they also calling on Hamas to release the hostages they hold? in addition to stopping their attacks, stopping their rocket volleys aimed at Israel. So for now, the conflict continues. Israel stepping up its ground attack in Gaza uh, to try to root out uh, Hamas officials and especially Hamas infrastructure. And uh, this network of tunnels that Hamas has built over the years, uh, that's uh, a particular interest to Israeli forces. By the way, uh, there was a story from NBC yesterday as UN officials say hospitals in Gaza are running dangerously low on fuel, Hamas is maintaining a stockpile of more than 200,000 gallons of fuel for the rockets it fires into Israel and the generators that provide clean air and electricity. So that's, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 750,000 liters of fuel. That's an e- enormous amount. Uh, that could go to use, especially when that's been one of the concerns expressed that no fuel is getting into Gaza. There seems to be plenty of it there, but Hamas is using it to fuel the rockets they continue to fire into Israel, the same rockets they refuse to stop firing even as they call for a ceasefire. So this is the reality of what we're dealing with here, the same group that carried out these uh, atrocities on October 7th. And no doubt this conflict uh, is causing great harm to civilians. Right? War is messy, and we know that, and we're seeing that. Uh, but what is the alternative here? What can be done with Hamas? What needs to be done? Can Hamas be defeated? Wouldn't that be a, a good thing uh, for the region? It's a really interesting uh, op-ed in the National Post today on the problem with Hamas and how for Muslims uh, it should be viewed that if Hamas is defeated as a good thing, as a win for the Muslim world, that this group is destroying the reputation of Muslims while hiding behind innocent human shields, say the authors. Well, joining us on the line here this afternoon is the co-author of that op-ed you can find at nationalpost.com. Raheel Raza is president of uh, Councils for Muslims Facing Tomorrow, also a board member with the Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism, much more at her website, raheelraza.com. Raheel, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, your thoughts on, on what we're seeing unfold right now. I mean, it, it is uh, a deadly conflict, obviously, and we've seen painful images uh, emerge every day. But certainly, you know, what we saw on October 7th was, was quite shocking indeed. Just your thoughts, first of all, on, on where things are at here. Well, what happened on October 7th was horrendous. And this was Hamas's horrific, <coughs> horrific attack on Israel. And uh, people soon forget that it was Hamas that uh, started the attack. Now, you were just uh, talking about uh, speaking to a Hamas spokesperson about a ceasefire, and I just wanted to explain to you that you have to understand the mindset of the jihadist, which is Hamas. I've been studying and opposing the jihadist mindset since even before 9-11. You know, I experienced the beginning of it while living in Pakistan, came to Canada. I didn't know how it was it would unfold, but 9-11 uh, said it all. So in Gaza right now, 
it is the jihadist mindset of Hamas playing out. It has nothing to do with peace talks, to do with the Palestinian issue, or any kind of a ceasefire. And you would ask me why? Mm -hmm. Because it all boils down, boils down to hate and anti-Semitism. What is a jihadist mindset? It's the politics of hate. Right. They hate them because they're Jews, and for their own made-up reasons, they think it's their duty to kill all Jews and obliterate them from that land. So how on earth would they talk about any kind of a ceasefire? Well, exactly. Um, let's talk about what Hamas is, and, and to elaborate on what you just said, I think there's, there's maybe a tendency in the West to think of Hamas as some sort of a Palestinian resistance group or a Palestinian nationalist group. That's, that's not what they are, is it? They're definitely not. In fact, I don't believe they even care for the Palestinians. Uh, they are an Islamist terrorist organization with roots and radical Sunni jihadist movements, uh, mainly the Muslim Brotherhood, and they are strongly supported by Iran and the Lebanese Shia proxy Hezbollah. Now, you know, the question that people need to ask, the masses need to ask, that they've had a free run of Gaza since 2005. But because of the jihadist mindset with a single purpose to kill all Jews and rid them of their land, they brought misery on their own people. You know, with the kind of financial aid that Hamas has been getting globally in billions, this could, Gaza could have been another Singapore. They could have built infrastructure and schools and hospitals, but it's a shameful condition. And my heart goes out to the civilians because they are not at fault for what Hamas is doing. And the fact is that not all Palestinians even support Hamas mm -hmm. because they have wrought so much misery on, on uh, uh, their own people. And this is what people must realize. And, and if they think that they are doing this because of religion, I'm a practicing observant Muslim, and I can tell you that nothing that they are doing is even closely res resembles what my Islam. So, uh, you know, raping women, killing children, brutalizing the elderly, taking hostages. It's all against the basic rules of what the Quran, our holy book, tells us. Mm -hmm. That even in war, you will never harm women, children, the infrastructure, and the environment. So who are they? They're right. jihadists. How do we defeat them then? How, how is Hamas going to be defeated? Well, the way that it is happening now, and it's very, very unfortunate that the collateral damage is with civilians, but that's because Hamas uses civilians as, as shields. Uh, you know, they, they operate uh, from, from homes, they operate, uh, they hide their ammunition in schools, they base their fighters uh, under hospitals, so it's so unfortunate that civilians get hurt. But this Right now, for everyone globally, Hamas needs to be dealt with. And let me also explain something else about the jihadist mindset. They are not warm, fuzzy people who want to sit around a table and have peace talks. They walked away from so many opportunities for a peace deal. Unfortunately, because of their barbaric and savage mindset, the only way they understand um, is power. The only way they can be dealt with is more strength than they have. Uh, as I said, it's unfortunate that there are civilians that get caught up in this, but they do not understand any other language. It's very sad to say this, but that is who they are. 
you know, they are savage in their treatment of human beings. So they don't, they don't care who gets killed in this war. They just want to eliminate the Jewish state and the Jewish people. That same Hamas spokesman was was doing an interview, and I, I believe it was a, an Egyptian journalist, if I'm not mistaken, but but a brave journalist certainly who asked the question that you you Hamas have built hundreds of kilometers of tunnels underneath Gaza. You've not built a single shelter uh, for citizens to hide in. Uh, once you know you start this conflict, Hamas is the one starting these wars uh, with Israel, and then there's there's nowhere for the citizens to hide. But there's all these miles of tunnels for Hamas fighters to to use, and he said, well, those tunnels are for us, for Hamas, uh, and, and said that, you know, the citizens are the responsibility of the United Nations. Like, Hamas isn't interested in governing uh, Gaza or leading Gaza, protecting the citizens of Gaza, are they? No, they're not. That is exactly what I said. If they had been, the situation wouldn't have been as bad as it is now for the civilians. They don't really care. They don't care who the collateral damage is because their mind is so filled with hate for the other side, that they don't really care who gets trampled in all of this. They're not about human rights. But, of course, when it serves them, they become the victims, and then they, you know, they, they cry that, uh, you know, they, they about colonialism and all these oppression and all these words that they, that they love to use. And it's unfortunate that so many people get brainwashed by their propaganda. Now, they, I have to say that propaganda machine works over time and is very, very effective because look what they put on social media, look what they're doing in terms of uh, changing the narrative. This is where they're so clever. So they want to, this was Hamas attacking Israel. That's a fact, you know, there's no two ways about it. It's It's not news, it's a fact. Now, instead of Israel versus Hamas, now it's Israel versus the Palestinians. And soon they're going to start promoting it, they already have, as a Muslim versus Jew war. Mm-hmm. And that is dangerous, because it's not. It's interesting, because you put out in your piece, um, you know, with the exception of Qatar, the, the Hamas is, is really shunned and detested, as you write, by, by pretty much all Arab states. Yes, and you've seen, and nobody wants to take them. They'll give them money, and this is what they've always done. They said, we'll fund you in billions, but don't come into our land, don't come into our country, because they are disliked, because of who they are. Right. You see, what is so hypocritical is when 9-11 happened, Al-Qaeda was never legitimized as an Afghan resistance movement. So we knew what Al-Qaeda and ISIS was in the globally. Everyone, yeah. including Muslim countries, condemned them. Mm-hmm. But they are reticent to condemn Hamas. And this is what I'm trying to push through my article, that the Muslim world needs to call Hamas out for what they are, a hateful jihadist movement, and they should help in disbanding them. You talk about, you know, the, the rise in hatred we've been seeing elsewhere and, and you know, that, that horrible incident uh, at the airport in Dagestan is an example of, of some of this really awful hatred that's manifesting itself right now. How do we need to confront that? Well, we need to speak out against it and make sure it's not happening in our own city, but it is happening. There has been a rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the last month. And uh, you heard about the cafe owner, the Landwer cafe, yes. And, you know, as a Muslim group, we had planned to take a group there to show our support and give him a letter of support and have lunch there. But he got death threats. 
So uh, wow. for his sake and his safety, we didn't go. Our Jewish students are being harassed at uh, educational institutions because the academics are all bought into this whole uh, colonial agenda. And so it's a very, very sad situation in Canada. It is. And you've been talking and writing about these issues for a very long time. Um, but, you know, you, you look at everything we're dealing with right now. Does that leave you feeling more pessimistic or what, what is your level of optimism that we can confront and tackle these these challenges? Well, you know, that's a very difficult question. Yeah. The Palestinian-Israel issue is a real issue, but it's something that's been going on for 70 years. You and I are not going to resolve it. They need to sit around a table as equals and and discuss it and debate it and not deflect from the real problems that they are facing. All I can do morally and ethically is speak out about what I think is the right thing to do. And because, unfortunately, Hamas happens to be my co-religionist, I want the world to know what that what they're practicing is not spiritual Islam. It's very important to differentiate. You know, they are not about faith. They are all about politics and hate. And that is not something that I condone. So, you know, people ask me, are you scared? But, you know, what are they going to do? Uh, you know, they've thrown everything at me so far. Death threats, fatwas, and lawsuit, hate mails. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this means only one thing, that they are more scared of me than I am of them. Absolutely. Well, well, I have to yeah. continue doing what I do. Well, and we're glad you do. We certainly appreciate making some time for us here, here today. Rahil, thanks for all the insights, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to talking again. Much appreciate Thank it. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Rahil Raza, president uh, of Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow, also a board member with the group Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Monday afternoon. Votes are just being cast as we speak on this conservative motion, a motion that calls on the government uh, to exempt all forms of home heating from the federal carbon tax. It was about 10 days ago. Uh, that the Prime Minister made what I think will turn out to be a very consequential announcement for a lot of reasons, but an announcement that home heating oil would be exempt from the carbon tax for three years. Of course, it was the government's policy that applied the carbon price to home heating oil in the first place. And after years of insisting that there had to be consistent standards across the country, after years of insisting that there couldn't be car votes and exemptions, after years of insisting that the carbon tax was not contributing to affordability challenges because of the rebates, the government threw all of those arguments uh, out the window in order to shore up support in Atlantic Canada, which remains a part of the country where home heating oil is used in significant numbers. There's a smattering of Canadians elsewhere that still do, but for the most part, home heating oil use is now concentrated in the Atlantic provinces. So the Liberals have been on the defensive since, and not surprisingly, the Conservatives wanted to uh, push the issue at the earliest opportunity. The New Democrats were voting with the Conservatives here this afternoon, but the Bloc announced earlier that they would vote with the Liberals, perhaps sparing the government from a politically embarrassing defeat. But it feels like something has changed. It doesn't feel like the liberals of, of five years ago would have been going through this. So what does it tell us about where they're at? What does it tell us about where the prime minister himself is at after eight years of being the prime minister uh, down significantly in the polls? 
Well, veteran uh, political journalist, uh, author, political observer Paul Wells uh, on the line with us here this afternoon. And uh, he's been writing about uh, all of this at his substack, paulwells.substack.com. And uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Paul, great to have you back with us. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, as I say, the uh, votes are still being cast on this carbon tax motion. Looks as though the conservative motion will fail. Uh, how significant, though, was this vote this afternoon, first of all, do you think? Well, it sets the predicate for uh, the conservatives running in every liberal-held riding and saying your MP had a chance to give you a break the way they gave a break to their friends in Atlantic Canada. Yeah. And they stood up and, and announced that they weren't going to give you the same break they gave their friends in Atlantic Canada. It becomes a pretty powerful uh, tool to use against liberals in local races. Um, beyond that, I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, symbolic motions in the House of Commons don't change much, and this wouldn't have changed much even if it had passed. Mm. But it's, um, it gets everyone on the record. Well, it does. And yeah, that's going to include Alberta's two liberal members of parliament. So that'll be interesting. We'll see how the rest of that goes. As for the decision itself, for the, the liberals to, to undermine their signature environmental policy in this way, as I said, I don't think they would have done this uh, five years ago. But what's changed or, or why do you think they were willing to, to do this now? Well, uh, the biggest difference is that the carbon tax has gone from being uh, hypothetical to a concrete case. And it, and it did it quite suddenly in Atlantic Canada. Uh, mm -hmm. A bunch of liberal governments turned conservative. A bunch of um, conservative climate plans were deemed uh, insufficient by the liberals. And, uh, and so suddenly uh, a bunch of populations were... Uh, susceptible to the carbon tax and the rebate scheme, right? So you pay the carbon tax and then you get a rebate check uh, all at once and with the carbon tax at a higher level than it used to be. So it was a bit of a shock and especially a shock because uh, home heating oil has uh, has been really expensive this year. So uh, just as your heating bills were, were, were getting hard to pay, uh, they suddenly became harder to pay in the summer and that led to a backlash. The, 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 the Liberals felt they couldn't ignore. I mean, there's rumors that one or more uh, Atlantic MPs were getting ready to quit or to leave the caucus or to cross the floor to the other side, all, all of which would have been a particular headache. And and so uh, Trudeau flinched. And what does it tell us about, you know, their, their not just their commitment to this idea, but really their commitment to any idea, because it feels like they're flailing. It feels like there's not much of an agenda left anymore. Uh, that's what I've been hearing. I mean, so what made me write that column, the latest column, was, uh, to some extent, not any observation of mine, except that as I go through my, like, I read about politics for a living, mm -hmm. people talk to me about politics for small talk, and suddenly, freaking everybody who came up to me was saying, do you think Trudeau's going to run again? Um, uh, which is their way of saying they're starting to doubt that he'll run again. They, right. they, they think that he's, you know... Uh, having walked away from a fight, he might just walk away from the job. And I have no way of knowing that. There's all kinds of reasons why an incumbent prime minister will want to keep stay on the job forever if they can. Uh, and if Trudeau left, even now, he would be the youngest prime minister ever to resign without having lost an election. Um, a couple of years younger than Brian Mulroney was when Mulroney still hadn't lost an election. It was pretty clear he was going to lose the next right. one. 
and so he split. He was two years older than Trudeau is now. Um, uh, and I, 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 I guess I just wanted to write about that feeling in the air, the, mm-hmm. the, the change in the mood among people who follow politics uh, about whether Trudeau still has the fight left in him. And that's based on, obviously, a bunch of stuff. It's based on gut. But the the sense that um, uh, it's getting to be a while since we saw Trudeau really, really show up for a fight, uh, rather than kind of pushing out talking points. Uh, and, and frankly, not in a very persuasive way. A couple of things happened over the last week, and you touched on both of them. I'm curious how significant they are, what they represent. You had uh, Percy Down, who's a senator, longtime liberal. Uh, he, he wrote yeah. an op-ed suggesting that maybe it's time for Justin Trudeau to resign. We said Mark Carney, who's seen as a potential future liberal leader, uh, come out and, and criticize the government, criticize the prime minister for the about-face on the carbon tax. So what does all of this amount to, do you think? Uh, to some extent, all it amounts to is that people aren't watching what they say as much as possible. Now, in both cases, there's not a lot of disincentive uh, to, 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 to speaking their mind. Uh, Percy Down hasn't been a member of the Liberal Caucus since 2013 when the new Liberal leader, uh, Justin Trudeau at the time, kicked every uh, every senator out of the Liberal Caucus um, because he wanted to kind of skate uh, Stephen Harper offside on some Senate issues. Mm-hmm. That was back in the days of the Mike Duffy controversy. Uh, and, and, and so Percy Down doesn't need to watch what he says because he can't get into Trudeau's good books because he spent a decade out, out, out of Trudeau's good books. Percy Down was a very important person in this town for uh, a couple of years as, as Cretchen's last chief of staff, but these days he's kind of lonely. And uh, he... he what he said is significant only because a hell of a lot of other people, including a lot of liberals, liberals I talk to, uh, think the same thing but don't have the guts to say it. Uh, Mark Carney, I'm not. I'm honestly not sure he actually meant to say anything. It, that interview in the Globe <laughs> reads like a Globe interview. Got him on the phone and started throwing questions at him that he wasn't prepared for, and he just started to babble. Yeah. But what he that, what he said was he's not ruling out. Uh, 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 any future interest in the liberal leadership. He's not ruling out running for parliament. He's talking the way people do when the job's not nailed down. Um, so in themselves, those two interventions, Percy Down and, and, and Mark Kearney, don't change the world, but they kind of reflect this mood in Ottawa that, uh, you know, if Trudeau... People... People don't know what Trudeau's going to do, so they're starting to think about what they're going to do. Right. And what's interesting and maybe unique in this circumstance, uh, very much unlike the, the Kretschy and Martin rivalry, is that here you have a prime minister, eight years in power, sinking in the polls, but there, there's there's no organized push to oust him, that he still is very much in the driver's seat. What, what does that tell us about you know, his grip on the party or, or what's happened within the liberals over the last eight years? You start to think that it might change quickly, and that his grip on the on the party might actually become quite tenuous. But it's important for people to bear in mind that since Trudeau has been the liberal leader, he's been the absolutely uncontested liberal leader. Yeah. No serious person has taken a run at him. They're not organizing uh, in any serious way uh, in 
well, if they, if they're organizing in secret, it's a really good secret in a town where good secrets are hard to hard to keep. Sure. I'm not aware of any organized faction that. So, the sort of uh, uh, business liberal, progressive liberal, uh, yin and yang thing that goes back to uh, Mitchell Sharp and Walter Gordon in the '60s, that Trudeau and Turner, Pierre Trudeau and, and John Turner, Gretchen Martin, uh, even Dion Ignatieff to some extent. Uh, that just ended when Trudeau became, when Justin Trudeau became the liberal leader. And for a decade, there's been no identifiable faction in the party. I think it's actually weakened the party. The party is less of a laboratory for competing ideas than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And it's now just the echo chamber for the leader. But the benefit of it for Trudeau is nobody with any horsepower is pushing on him right now. There's just a lot of people standing around going, man, why is he sticking around? Why would you just, why would you want to keep this job at some point? Um, but there's, there's nobody, um, there's nobody trying to push him out who knows how to do that. But you do raise a question that w- what's the point here? I mean, you know, they, they gone from, you know, the, the change of 2015 and ushering big ideas like uh, price on, on carbon and legalizing cannabis, all of these ideas, um, you know, to, to now the point where they're just kind of regurgitating old ideas or, or undermining those central policies. Like, what is the reason either then wanting to to get to some magic number or 10 years as, as prime minister or whatever it is, or just thinking that he, he doesn't want to to run away from a fight with Pierre Pauly. Like, is it, is it something else? Because all the rest just kind of seems like ego. So part of the fun of writing a newsletter is that uh, my readers get to comment. Sometimes they're smarter than me. And I, one of the comments on that piece that I wrote was kind of interesting. It was the person just wrote very simply, look, I think the reason Justin Trudeau keeps around, stays around is that he doesn't want Pierre Polyev, with Pierre Polyev's ideas and with Pierre Polyev's voter base, to be the prime minister. And so he's going to fight because he thinks it's a fight worth fighting. And that's so obvious that he almost doesn't need someone to write it down, but someone did. And I think it, I, I think it's persuasive that if Justin Trudeau um, sticks around for the next fight, it, the, somewhere in there there's the sense that he thinks it's a fight that he shouldn't lose, and he thinks that it's a fight over ideas, and he wants to be he wants to be present for that fight. But what I always tell people is that elections are overrated as political events in our country because there's many more days that aren't election day, the days that are election day, and the question is always what What are you doing today? Yeah, uh, it's like if you've got a kid in school who, who's kidding themselves about how important. Uh, next year is because next year is when the colleges start looking or something. And the answer, the, the, the question you always put to the kid is, what did you do today to learn more to, you know, and, and similarly with Justin Trudeau, I keep thinking, man, oh man, oh man, sure. There's going to be an election someday, but, uh, like on this carbon tax thing, it would be close to child's play for, uh, a, an engaged prime minister to say, you know what? There's a million ways to get emissions down. Uh, everything is a, a combination of a bunch of different measures. And sh- sure, sometimes we have to do less on 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 uh, home fuel oil because we're doing more on building a green power grid. And we're not even alone in this. That Ontario and Quebec have come out with really ambitious plans to green up their power grids. And 
in that world where everyone's making some kind of effort, uh, we can let up on the pressure on individual consumers a little bit. You know, like that's that's an argument that could get made, but instead they just they come out with robots. They come out looking like robots, sounding like robots, and uh, kind of in denial about the fight they're in. It's um, just a weird moment in our politics. Yeah, it is. It looks as though that conservative motion has indeed failed, and we'll see what the fallout is from that. Much more is mentioned uh, at your Substack, paulwells.substack.com. Paul, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. Thanks for the invitation. All the best. Cheers. Uh, that is veteran political journalist and author Paul Wells. Uh, his latest, uh, the headline, Hollow Crown. It's Trudeau's job if he wants it, but that raises another question. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.